Hello, you're listening to Thought Starters, a podcast on the business of creativity. I'm Ellie Stuhler. Joining us in conversation today from the pod at White City Place, F.A. Chakarel, founder of Mubi, and David Jenkins, the editor of film magazine Little White Lies. On the agenda, the quirk of Cannes, the importance of context in how you show film, and the future ecosystem of film distribution. If Netflix were cultivated for cinephiles to the highest degree, you'd have Mubi. Founded 10 years ago, it's an online film viewing platform that focuses on art house and independent cinema that keeps a catalog of just 30 ever-changing and carefully selected films on its site. Little White Lies magazine, based here in London, is a delight to behold. Its very considered film criticism is accompanied by imaginative, original illustration and graphic whimsy. They start off by talking about what else, movies, and why we watch. I used to live on a road in Islington. About five or six doors up, there was a a video shop, like a DVD rental shop called the film shop and they had it it was a little chain they had one in Stoke Newington and one in uh, in Borough as well the guy who run it was this really hardcore cinephile because he not only had commercial releases that were kind of i guess the bread and butter of the community but he had like the entire criterion collection he had like films that had never been released on DVD on VHS and he would organize the shop by director as well which is kind of you know you wouldn't find that in like a blockbuster video you know you you had like a fellini section and a truffaut section <laughs> and uh they had some insane deal where it was like five pound a month for you can get three titles for as long as you want they didn't think that people would do that but yeah i mean for this kind of tiny subscription fee i had basically had my entire film education you know every night every weekend i would sort of drop a DVD back, pick another one up, watch it that, that evening. And, and it was just this kind of constant rotation. Yeah. But prior to that, I would want to see these films in cinemas and they just they just weren't really there. There is this kind of, you know, hunger to see these films and them not really being available in that way, I guess. Mm-hmm. And uh, do you think that, like, the cinema experience has, has changed? Oh, yeah, I love the cinema experience. I'll come back to that. But yeah, interesting, yeah. interesting you mentioned... Again, the video store, because that is really our inspiration. I mean, we, Mubi is that guy. You know, and when you go to that video store, you don't care that if they have a thousand titles, there's always the staff's picks. And, you know, there's some 50 films there and you have a conversation with him. And whether you're in the mood for a romantic comedy or an action or a classic film, he would always pick something and then you'd have an amazing experience. And that's Mubi. Only 30 films you can watch at any time. But yes, yeah, cinema, look, absolutely, we we believe in cinema. I mean, these films should really be experienced on the big screen. How many times I've seen, you know, 12 Angry Men and then they do a screening of it in Cannes. You know, you end up wanting to watch this thing on the big screen. You know, I, I am lucky that I live in a place like London and I'm like so into cinema and I get to watch almost every great cinema on a big screen at some point. But what Mubi is doing is not replacing that. It's making it more convenient and accessible. So if you're not as lucky to live in London, if you're living in a, in a, in a small town somewhere, and even Moonlight, which is really an amazing film, you know, if it didn't win the Oscar, it would probably come there and stay for two weeks and it would be gone kind of a thing. 
more people should be seeing this cinema, great cinema, and online is a very convenient, accessible way. We think every other format is going to die. You know, DVD is, is you know, I have a 12-year-old sister in Istanbul, right? And I can tell you for a fact that she'll never buy a single DVD in her life, right? Wow. Fact. <laughs> yeah, and I think when she gets into, you know, her own flat in five, six years, when she goes to college uh, with roommates, she's probably not going to sign up for a cable right. like Sky. Um, she is going to get all her entertainment from one of her devices at home, right? And she's going to go to the cinema mm-hmm. uh, to watch films because it's a completely different and wonderful experience. So we think cinema exists, cinema should exist, and, and then uh, what we are doing is going to really going to be the home media entertainment. I always read this argument that the cinema is kind of, co- you know, coming home, you know, like how people project films in cinemas now and the, the audio equipment and the visual equipment is not a million miles away from actually like consumer grade things that you can have in your house. And depends I, on your house, I guess, I guess if you've got a big mansion, but you know, mo- most, most places now have like, maybe it's, this is reflecting badly on my friends, but it's, I can't think of a, of a friend who doesn't have some like, you know, their living room is, the centerpiece of it is some 50-inch plasma screen <laughs> that they've got with, like, you know, mini speakers and sound bars and stuff like that. I mean, I certainly have that, but... I don't I, know. I mean, I, I have I have a rather large and somewhat embarrassing screen in my, in my <laughs> living room, and it's not the same. It's not the same. To be in that dark room and the curtain goes up and you watch this film, the stimulation, the emotion you have, uh, yeah, I think it's a very unique experience in cinema. I think the thing that is kind of still keeping cinema this unique thing is this idea of solitude. And, you know, it, I, I think that the appeal of cinema to me is the the promise of being able to sort of disconnect, you know, like whereas even even if you're kind of very, if you, you know, if you're very harsh on yourself and you kind of turn your phone off and put it in the other room and put the phone off the hook and everything, there's still, you know, there's still things if you're watching a film at home there's just there is just distraction there is there's next door neighbors yeah. you know moving the sofa and you know there there's <laughs> but yeah i guess the cinema is that sort of sanctuary you know yeah. where where you can just yeah. and i guess that's why a lot of a lot of people who write about film in a very in, in that kind of romantic way they do write about it in, in a kind of as a sort of spiritual experience and i guess in it, it is very in that in a kind of literal way in that you, you you're kind of removing yourself from the world for sort of 90 minutes so. do, do you go to cinema by yourself most times yes nice <laughs> me too I, I i much prefer it in fact you know what <laughs> i went to see a film last night and i was thinking it was halfway through the film and there was not that many people in the cinema maybe like 12 other people and i was like thinking i would absolutely love to be in this cinema on my own right now with no other people because I was, I was so like overwhelmed by this film that, that it was actually something that was that I was thinking I, I almost feel embarrassed to sort of be with with all these other people now I no I don't know there are occasions where and I love to go to cinema with my wife and uh you know we have a conversation because we have very different tastes in, in yeah, cinema same. <laughs> so so you know it's a very lovely experience to go and see a film and then go and have dinner and, and actually have a sort of lengthy argument about <laughs> who's right and who's wrong. Because, so. look, cinema is a, uh, is a big commitment of your life, actually. Like, even people who love film, they don't watch many movies. You know, three a month, four a month, 
right? Even if you love them. Um, so you really want to be sure before you watch a film. So what happens is either you're heavily marketed to it, so you see La La Land everywhere, and then you go you see the film, or because it's, it's the conversation, or somebody who knows you well says, David, you've got to watch this film. It's amazing, right? They are the only two. You don't go to a place and try to figure out what you want to watch. And when you do, that's a frustrating experience. I mean, think about your own Netflix experience and how frustrating it is to find the film you want to watch, right? Even with all these algorithms and so on and so forth. So, so a trusted friend, you want to, you know, that, that, is, that is very important. And that friend needs to be opinionated. That friend needs to have a certain personality. I, I, I guess, yeah. I mean, I think I agree. And I think that that's certainly a, a kind of notion that we, we kind of use when producing Little White Lies as well in terms of which films we cover. And I think that... that oh, yeah. yeah. How do you decide well, what goes on the cover? <laughs> um, well, I think... That's that, a big decision. Yeah, no, it is a huge decision because we only get to make it like six times a year. And, and it really, it, you know, it's a big thing. And, and sometimes it's really difficult. Do you know what? It's either really, really, really easy... Or really, really, really difficult, and never, never in between. It's never a kind of like, oh, maybe. <laughs> um, like I remember when we were in Cannes in 2015. I just saw the film Carol, uh, the Todd Haynes oh, yeah, film. Yeah. And I was with my, a colleague. I was there that day as well. <laughs> yeah, and I was just with a colleague, and I said, "Yeah, we're definitely putting that on the cover. Yeah. Like, you know, what, whatever, whatever happens, we're going to put that on the cover." And it was it, it was really interesting because. What I a think beautiful film. Because yeah. it was actually coming out at the same time as, like, The Force Awakens, the Star Wars film. And, you know, we had been sort of thinking seriously whether there was a way that we could, you know, do something interesting on that that film as well. That, you know, and in, that, by the way, was a good film as well. The, yeah, the no, I, I, yeah. I thought so, yeah. yeah. we and But, I mean, with that film, we didn't actually get to see it till the very, very last minute. So we wouldn't making the magazine logistically would have been kind of tough, and and you know we would have had to take a gamble on whether the film would have been good or not. But you know I think increasingly we're very like we try to do things more based on actual like fact rather than speculation. How can we produce content or write stories about things that we know we like that we can be that we can be genuinely enthusiastic about that we can actually say, say we've seen Carol and we can tell you it's incredible with a hundred percent certainty because uh, you know we've actually experienced it rather than like oh there's this new marvel movie coming out in six months time which we've seen a clip from and it's you know we're really excited about it. and it's like it's i don't know for me don't understand what that excitement is is really based on and and so editorially it's as much as we possibly can trying to sort of base our decisions on like you know hard fact and I and I guess I guess when I say hard fact, I actually mean just subjective opinion. But like, um, <laughs> but but, <laughs> but you mean, yeah, hard, you mean hard subjective opinion? Yeah, hard subjective opinion. But like, yeah, I think again, it's also like you know we have to we kind of are very aware who our audience are and what films they're excited about. So I think it's actually more interesting to sort of flip that equation and actually is looking at what other people are excited about rather than what like maybe what what we're excited about one of the things i'm really proud of doing is uh so we we ended up doing a star wars edition of the magazine on rogue one which was the second star wars and that was based on the fact that we were really big fans of the director gareth edwards 
And we ended up choosing to do like a colour in edition of the magazine. It had a black and white cover and our readers were invited to colour in all the cover and all the illustrations because we wanted to do something. It was kind of like based on the the light side and the dark side and the sort of iconography of black and white in Star Wars movies. And it was really successful. And I, I think it was, you know, there's no way I wanted to just do a sort of straight down the line Star Wars issue. It wouldn't That wouldn't have appealed to me at all. Uh, and then we followed that up by putting a film on the cover called Tony Erdman, which is a, a three-hour German comedy. And uh, again, it was another kind of can experience. It was just one of the, for me, probably the highlight of my entire can going uh, life. I mean, it was just like such a, a high-energy, amazing, euphoric screening that, um, yeah, there was just a feeling that we want to support this incredible female German filmmaker, Marinada. And yeah, I love the fact that we kind of did a Star Wars issue and then we did a Tony Erdman issue, like back to back. I mean, it was like, it's all, it's all about that juxtaposition. You're listening to Thought Starters with F.A. Chuckarell, the founder of Mubi, and David Jenkins, editor of Little White Lies magazine. It is very difficult for us to show newer films, right? Like Tony Erdman is a film, perfect film, that we would have loved to show today. And that film is really exciting today. But what happens is a distributor would buy the film out of Cannes, and then there will be a theatrical release, and then a theatrical holdback of a couple of months, and then the film would be on DVD and transactional video on demand. And those holdbacks getting slimmer, though, isn't it? Yeah, I'll, I'll tell you what we were doing yeah, on that okay. front. <laughs> um, so, so then, you know, you could, you could rent it on iTunes or, you know, you know, get a DVD if it's a big release. Then, you know, three to six months later, it would go on a pay TV window. So it would be on, like, premium channel Sky. And it would stay there for about 12 to 18 months. And... Uh, Throughout this period, the subscription video on demand, right, which is where us, Netflix, and you know, Amazon are, it will be hold back. So we won't be able to show that film for two more years. Netflix, with all the money in the world, won't be able to show Tony Edmund for another two years, right? It's insane. And how do you break that, right? And the way that you know, Netflix and Amazon, of course, is breaking that is by either producing their own original content and they skewed heavily towards TV, which is where the engagement is. Or increasingly, you know, they are out there in the festivals buying all rights of the films. So we actually got into that game starting last year in Cannes. So it was us, you know, Mubi, Netflix, and Amazon. We were competing with the traditional distributors like uh, the Studio Canals and Sodas, you know, who bought uh, Tony Edmund, uh, in order to buy all rights of the film and release it ourselves. And the film that we, we focused and ended up buying is a wonderful little film called uh, The Happiest Day in the Life of Olimaki. It's a Finnish film, first-time director, black and white shot on a 16mm. I mean, it's just beautiful. <laughs> um, this is a film we loved, and we managed to buy all rights of the film in UK and US, and then the film ended up winning Uncertain Regard in Cannes. You know, it's the best film in, uh, in that section. So that's a film in April coming up next month. We are going to release theatrically on April 21st. So you're going to be able to go and see these films in the, in the theaters. Why we, do you wait 11 months? We w- played the Oscar game. Right. 
it was Finland's submission for the Oscars, and we saw a high chance of this film being nominated. So when when you bet on that, you you hold the release mm-hmm. uh, in order to really maximize the whole conversation around the film, because this film, you know, it is you won't be able to market this film the way that Lionsgate did with La La Land. So Oscars is a, is a big important moment for foreign cinema. Anyway, so we are releasing this film. The difference is that now I'm not going to wait for three years, right? So it's going to be shown in the theater. So you're going to go to picture houses and cruise zones and so on and so forth and watch this film. And four weeks later, you know, still being negotiated, that window, say four weeks later, it will be available on movie exclusively for a month, of course. And after that, it's going to go on iTunes and Amazon, you know, everywhere. But the good thing and the important thing is we'll be able to bring these wonderful films to, you know, our audience who really watch these films online much earlier. And you're going to see more and more of this. I think, like, last year, we were dipping our toes. This year, in Cannes, you should expect Netflix, Amazon, and us to, like, buy the Tony Edmund equivalent film. Wow. Yeah, uh, and we can. And turns out, by the way, releasing a film is not also rocket science. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, theatrical releasing a film, and then, you know, you put it up on Mubi, and on the transactional side, there is only two guys, iTunes and Amazon, and, you know, if you want to do a pay TV deal, there's Sky, and you're done. And you have, if you have good relationships with all these guys, and it takes about three days to meet them all. So it's, um, it's very interesting mm-hmm. and super interesting because what, what movie has also, what a traditional distributor doesn't necessarily have is an audience, a ready audience. You know, people are not following a distributor. You know, they're, they're following the film. Whereas there's a lot of people who follow what movie does, right? So when movie chooses a film, buys a film, releases a film, it becomes uh, you know, part of the conversation and there is a lot of curiosity. And again, we really believe in the cinema experience, so we we really give a big push on the theatrical release in a way that the other online platforms wouldn't. Because for them, what's really important is the film to be up on their platform exclusively. But we care about the cinema. Uh, We see that as an important moment for the filmmaker that uh, we are supporting as well with this release. I guess it might be worth just, uh, maybe too late to add that, like, you know, for places like Little White Lies and Mubi, I guess, you know, Cannes is a sort of, the sort of sun around which the kind of year orbits, I guess. Because, I mean, it, it's just in, in, in terms of, you know, you have these big film festivals throughout the year. And, you know, I have a lot of, you know, young critics who ask me about whether they should go to film festivals and whether they should go to Venice or whether they should go to Berlin. And, you know, ev- every time I sort of say, just you need to go to Cannes. It's probably going to cost a bit more and it's probably going to be a bit harder to get to and get accreditation for. But if you can manage to do it somehow, it's the one that you need to go to. There is a lot of circus in Cannes, you know, the whole red carpet and the stars and so on and so forth. But you go in, the the lights dim and then the, the film begins and it's cinema and there is a lot of respect for it. So, yeah, it's I think there is there's nothing like Cannes. One of the other things you get at Cannes, which is, I think, pretty unique as well, is, uh, and I guess you just don't really see it so much at, at your kind of, you know, your local cinema, is that the people there have a very, like, visceral vocal experience to films as well. I mean, if they like a film, it's going to get, like, whoops and hollers and uh, big standing ovations. I mean, one of the things about that was amazing about seeing Tony Erdman is that 
twice during the film there was two standing ovations actually as as it was being shown and uh again just to you know it was that euphoric atmosphere about it but at the same time there's a sort of gladiatorial element to it as well and i think that's what makes it so exciting because there is this, there is a competition and amazing things can happen you can get two standing ovations during your film the opposite can happen where you you know you screen a film there and it's uh it's roundly booed and 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 hissed and and you know can gets it wrong as well i mean the buffalo 66 was hissed and booed and so on and so forth and, and i think it's a masterpiece right. do you have do you ever have you ever experienced the thing i mean maybe this is going a little bit off piece but there's a thing in can which nobody really knows about and this kind of gives it an almost sort of eyes wide shut feel where it's like you, you go to these screenings and then at a certain times of the day, I mean, there's generally a screening at like four o'clock in a certain screening room. And before the screening starts, people shout the name Raoul. Have you ever heard, have you ever heard of that? No. It's, <laughs> it's very, very bizarre. So like the can ident will play. So it's like these kind of glass steps going up to the heavens. And as soon as it finishes, someone will scream Raoul. And everyone will laugh. And it, every day at that screening, there is someone shouts Raoul. I've been going for, like you know for the, since two thousand and seven. That's been a, that's just been a thing. Nobody nobody can tell you why it happens or, or who, who it's referring to or what it is. But it is just a thing. I think I may want to start my own tradition. Yeah, no, I think I, <laughs> if you, if you can this year, try and get, try and go to one of the press screenings in the Debussy, and uh, and and you'll hear it. It's. Uh, it, it, it kind of emphasizes that kind of camaraderie. Of, of, you know, I think one of the things about going to Cannes is very like you feel you're among like everyone there. You can have a, an interesting conversation with, and you have, you know, you're you're on the level. I guess. I think that what's exciting about cinema and being a, a cinephile, I guess, is that you don't know the future. You don't you you know you don't know what people are going to do. I mean, there's obviously changes in technology when it comes to actually making films and. You know, maybe things are getting cheaper, but essentially, like, I think the best cinema is the cinema that is kind of formulated around great ideas and, um, you know, original thinking and an and, and attempt to be unique. I mean, I, I, I don't know if it's just my, my being kind of jaded and seeing too many films, but, like, I really, like, if I, if I can see a film that is trying to do something new, which maybe isn't successful on a kind of commercial level or, you know, or, or on a sort of very, on a sort of superficially enjoyable level, I do have a really massive respect for it and, uh, and hope, you know, always hope it's seen by a wider audience. Um, you know, I guess the sort of question that everyone is talking about now is, is, is like the sort of clash with TV and, and, you know, TV being defined more as these kind of, you know, these just, they're just films with, that are shown in 10 parts kind of thing. But with respect to the, f the you know, the format of this scripted one and a half hour 2D, uh, it's here to stay, I think. I mean, there is a lot of new developments in the technology space, you know, with augmented reality and virtual reality and you participating in the in the story and there's a lot of really good interesting stuff is going to come out but cinema is a very traditional thing and if you actually go and speak to the sort of the young up-and-coming filmmakers and out of these you know just a couple of years out of film schools they are not experimenting with any of this stuff they they want to make a great film in the way that they experienced it growing up 
So, you know, is the nature and the format and the delivery of the film going to change uh, over time? Yeah, but in, in the next decade or so, I, I hardly think. I think what we are experiencing in Cannes today is what we are going to experience in Cannes in 10 years as well with the types of films that we see and the types of films then then, then goes to, uh, uh, to get a lot of critical recognition. It just seems absurd to think that film, like there might just be a moment where people stop watching films. I mean, it's, it, it's, it is a creative outlet and, you know, it is like, not, you know, it's like people aren't going to just stop writing novels because they're now read on like Kindles. It's like, you know, it's the same thing. I mean, it's the language. And if it dies out, it's the idea of a language becoming obsolete, which which just doesn't really happen, to be honest. Yeah. It's... That only happens when the people who are, you know, speaking that language die out. And I just don't think filmmakers are going to die out. You know? yeah. long, long live cinema. Exactly, yes. <laughs> that was F.A. Chakorel, founder of Mubi, and David Jenkins, editor of Little White Lies magazine. This has been Thought Starters, recorded at the pod at White City Place, produced by Deanne and Co., with David Michon and Claire Crofton. To find out how you can record your own podcast at White City Place, find us at whitecityplace.com, on Twitter or Instagram under the handle at whitecityplace, or shoot us an email at podcast at whitecityplace.com. And subscribe to Thought Starters on iTunes, give us a rating, and write us a comment. It really helps. Thank you for listening. That's it for Launch Week. There's more where that came from. You can catch the next episode of Thought Starters in two weeks. Mm-hmm.